Greetings, and welcome to DWR, Discussions on Writing and Rhetoric, a space for informal conversations around research and practice in the field at the university level, a place inclusive for curious novices, blossoming scholars, and seasoned academics to consider and share their inquiries, experiences, and passions surrounding writing and rhetoric. We are your hosts, Professors Megan Falconer and Nicholas Gardiakos with the University of Central Florida. Thank you for joining us. Now let's get this conversation started. Hi, and thanks for joining us today. We have undergraduate students here at University of Central Florida, Jarrett Webster and Keelani Smith, as well as Dr. Sonia Ariano and Dr. Jamila Kareem. Recently, Jarrett and Keelani interviewed and did some focus work with uh, Dr. Kareem and Dr. Ariano for the UCF publication Imprint in the summer 2021 issue. They are the co-chief editors, and we would like to talk to them a little bit today about the project that they were involved in because, not to be too much of a spoiler alert to those who haven't read the issue, there seemed to be a moment of a real call to action where you both felt compelled to take this particular um, issue in a very specific direction. So can you kind of talk to us about that for a little bit and give us some background? Uh, Yeah. So um, we started working on the magazine in summer uh, as two interns. And one of the ways that we were trying to find a theme for the issue was talking about some of the things that we had in common and that we thought were similar Um, and kind of what kind of issue we wanted to create what impact do we want to leave on imprint so to speak (laughs) the imprint on imprint yes (laughs) um and we we found out that we both are in love with this anthology called this bridge called my back um edited and and created by sherry moraga and gloria and zaldua um and so we decided to make the theme voices of the margins yes (laughs) (laughs) So tell me just really briefly, if you could describe Imprint to a listener who had no um, understanding of what that magazine, what is Imprint? Imprint is a student-run magazine and like where we take stories from campus, we take what's important to us, and we just put it out there back to other students. Is it a, is it a product of a particular part of UCF or is it um, like open to the entire university? Um, it's It's meant to be a student-run magazine that's also funded or like creates student works so only students are able to actually write for the magazine and publish articles in the magazine Um, and our our mission for for the issue is to evoke embolden and empower um, the students in the community of UCF and so stories that that do all three of those things are, are what we're trying to publish but specifically in an area that we think matters a lot which is social justice and social change. So it then seems like a no-brainer as to why you would decide to work with Dr. Ariano and Dr. Kareem. Right, exactly. Talk to us a little bit about that. I love them. (laughs) (laughs) What's not to love, really? Yeah, I've taken both of them, and they're both just so insightful when it comes to talking about culture and race and gender and class. So it was really interesting to get to interview them, especially with like political and social climates now, and get their perspective on what it means to be a colored person in the space of like a university. Absolutely. So Dr. Ariano and Dr. Kareem, how did you feel when um, Kehlani and Jarrett approached you about this idea? You want to take it? 
<laughs> yeah, I'll say first. Um, I I loved it because first I read um, one of Kehlani's uh, former publications and it just, oh my gosh, had me in tears. It really spoke to me. And then um, I had Jared in a class as well. And I recall teaching this bridge called My Back um, and it really impacted him. He expressed to me, it really impacted him. And while of course, part of what I do in my work is, you know, try to facilitate um, BIPOC students' feelings of belonging in such a white space, but it's something different when you can also um, impact white students to think about um, marginalized voices and um, just, just other types of people. I think that's also really impactful. So I was really excited that both of them kind of took up this um, viewpoint to, to do some interviews about. Uh, yeah, so I guess my my uh, initial reaction was similar. I felt very excited because, uh, like Dr. Ariano said, I did um, I not did love. I still love uh, Kehlani's piece. I'm sorry I made you black, which was an imprint, <laughs> and I use it in uh, my love and two courses or some sections of it um, to um, have them really think about the rhetorical, I guess, properties or strategies of writing across difference from a place of personal experience. And then to connect that to, um, to connect your own personal uh, self-expression to um, broader issues and to broader topics, um, but also to think about, um, you know, as a young black woman, um, what does it mean to, to make those connections across race, class, gender, uh, you know, difference, um, and other, and language differences even. Um, so I, I really was excited when I saw that it came from Kehlani and not just from the piece, I heard so much about it and I didn't have any experience, uh, working with Jared at that time, but, um, from the email that he sent me and like sort of a lot of the, um, concepts that he, he proposed. And then he sent over this, really cool poem. It's slipping my mind, um, but um, I did love it. And I thought that that was really cool um, that he really brought that to my attention. Um, and I just, um, I'm lucky enough to have Kehlani in class now. And I'm super excited because I'd heard so much about her from other professors um, and other faculty in the department. Um, and so I was just great i was just i felt great to have and humbled to have the opportunity to um to converse and to um have the interview with both of these students for sure i'm like sweating <laughs> oh my god <laughs> that was so nice i didn't know any of that <laughs> can i just add one more thing i feel like you know i hear different different people all over maybe on social media you know maybe complain about students or say things that are, are not positive. And I always think to myself, what students are you teaching? Because our students in DWR are really awesome. And I think y'all too, your, your work um, really demonstrates, I think, um, what about our students inspires me as I think of myself at your age <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I was not doing anything like this. Um, and so your your work just really inspires me um, and gives me hope, um, you know, that young people are doing really impactful things. Yeah, I agree. 
I feel that way a lot as well. Every semester, I, I feel like a, a renewed sense of, of hope, I think is the right word, that we we see so much about people being disconnected and not being aware of what's happening in the world around them. But I really don't think that that's necessarily the, the narrative. And it's a disservice that that's the narrative that we keep, you know, hearing and seeing. And and that's why it's so important that we have these opportunities to have these discussions and and shed light on the fact that, no, these are not the, uh, you know, the the... This is not the uh, the exception. Yeah, I echo that. And I just a question for, you know, the two student authors here. What are some of those things, those internal motivations, those things that drive you, you know, when you're thinking about things to write about, when you're observing the world? Could you, could you talk to us a little bit about some of those things for you, uh, each of you that, that kind of drive you? Um, yeah, so when I took professional lives and literacy practices with Dr. Ariano and we we read through the anthology I was enthralled by all of the the readings and I fell in love with a lot of the concepts we actually made a a few of our articles that other students had published in um, imprint for that issue we made titles that were direct links and um, kind of Easter eggs almost to the anthology itself one person wrote about um, the deaf and hard and hearing community here at UCF and how there isn't a lot of support for them. And the title of the article is Disability is Not in, in, Disability is Not an Unnatural Disaster, which is an article that was published in the anthology as Invisibility is an Unnatural um, Disaster. And so we I think I work to realize that I, I am a white cis male who um, has had a lot of privilege and a lot of advantages in life. And so after reading that anthology and realizing that 50 years later, we are still having the same conversations and still fighting the exact same fights, um, I think that my role as a publisher and editor and a writer is to create more spaces for other voices rather than taking the mic. That was such a good answer. I don't want to go after. <laughs> I think a lot of the things that inspire me is challenging the idea of diversity because that's like a hot topic. You know, everybody wants to be diverse there, especially after what happened in 2020. Like every that's just something that everybody's striving for, not even in university, but in like retailers and different companies across everywhere. So I guess it's getting the student perspective. Like, are we actually diverse? What is your experience? And putting that on blast because you know it's just sometimes it can appear just like a front like we just want to seem that way so just getting that actual experience is what really excites me to get people to come in and publish with us and hear them out yeah that's something that I um I took from the article with Dr. Ariano this idea of um like token diversity versus like actual practice so uh, amongst all amongst every all of the guests, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about what does that look like? What does that mean to you? What have your experiences been? I know there's one point in Dr. Ariana's interview that I was like getting emotional because I asked her like, you know, being the diversity pick is something that I'm personally really scared of. Like, what if I get an interview one day as a person of color and I'm only there to check off a box, you know? Or what if I'm in, like I'm, I look around, I'm the only brown person in my class and, or like in a company or at a table. And she told me like the undertone of being the diversity pick is that you are not qualified for that position. And I swear, cause I used to teach babies like dance. This is something that I would tell them even though they don't understand is that you are qualified to be there. And that you, even though you may check off a box, 
you have the qualifications, you are smart enough, you're educated enough to be in that space, regardless if you're a diversity pick. So that's something I like still keep with me from Dr. Ariano's interview mm-hmm. in token diversity and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one thing that I think is part of my responsibility as, again, this white person who inhabits spaces that are advantageous to myself, um, I think my responsibility is to look around the room constantly um, and make sure that I'm not hogging the mic, that I, I try and highlight other people's voices and see who's missing around the table before we engage in discussions about those specific groups of people. Um, I, I actually, I think about this a lot because I have these conversations, um, with like people, particularly like across political, um, parties or I guess ideal political ideologies. And one of the thing that, one of the things that keep coming back to is that for me, it's not just about the people being in the room or being in the space, but it's also about allow, I don't know, allowing something right where it's also about, um, appreciating, inviting, I guess maybe it's the word, inviting, encouraging them to be their most authentic selves, obviously in the context of whatever space it is. Um, And, you know, understanding, um, you know, it's like sort of like when I'm talking, we're talking to our students about rhetoric and language and thinking about their use of the terms like proper English. And so I'm always questioning, what do you mean by proper English? And so they're like, well, you know, the kind we learned in school, the standard, I'm like, but is it the standard or is it a standard, right? So it's about really questioning like, okay, you've invited, um, you know, this black American person or this Latinx person or this Asian American person into this white space, but you're expecting them to, whether they want to or not, accommodate your standards of whiteness or standards of Eurocentrism for being in the world rather than trying to learn from them or collaborate across lines or, um, or you know, that's just racial, right? If it, we're talking about people with disabilities, right? So, you know, the attitude is, well, there are less people with disabilities in our society, so they need to accommodate us rather than us learning from them and working with them and, um, you know, and being an actual community. It's always about the, the dominant perspective being accommodated and being assimilated into. So I think for me, an actual like space of inclusion and equity really looks like or feels like a space where people from different experiences, different cultures, different ethnicities, races, all of the the things (laughs) can come together um, and actually not expect, you know, a complete shift or a complete change, um, but, you know, sees the the beauty and the honesty and the authenticity and the and the worthiness, the value and the expression and the ways of being of people who are different from us. So I think that for me, that's what it means. Um, yeah, y'all are so optimistic and not that I'm pessimistic, but I think that um, I don't know that actual diversity work is possible in the university. Um, I think similar to how uh, 
to other things, right? Because the institution itself was built upon a white middle class, upper middle class, um, you know, approach to, to life. And so that can make it really difficult sometimes. So I think that, you know, I see this um, in a different way. Sometimes I think about how my success, students' success at the university um, is within a structure and a system that is evaluated according to white middle class, you know, parameters. And so, you know, I, I think it makes it difficult, right? Because we can be in the space, we can be heard in the space. Um, but, you know, can we, can we ever run the space? Can it be changed? Um, and so I think, you know, similar to what Jamila was saying, um, for me, I think about, I, you know, she said that, um, she thinks of, of us being able to be in a space and not have to change how we are, how we present ourselves, right. To be comfortable in that space. And for me, I think, you know, maybe it's a matter of, of changing the space yeah. to, you know, identify or, or to name, um, how, how it's different, you know? So I think instead of saying, oh, I should be able to exist here and not have to accommodate anyone. I think, what if the norm is that, that existence, right? So, um, I think there's a lot of changes that could and should be made to the university system. Um, because again, I think, yeah, it's great. I can, we're, we're hired here as BIPOC people, you know, we get to teach BIPOC students. It's amazing. Um, but simultaneously our work is still, you know, somewhat peripheral or maybe not, um, acknowledged in the same way. We still have to meet these certain parameters, these certain accolades in order to, you know, advance or, um, consider, be considered successful. So the parameters are still not set by us. And, um, that to me is limits the possibilities. I don't know that I believe anything radical can happen within academia. I think that work happens in communities. Um, but nevertheless, I still am hopeful. Therefore, I'm here, and you know, I think my existence, our existence, Dr. Kareem, in academia is enough unsettling um, that, that I think that's successful in itself. Can I just add to actually? And I love that you said that um, changing the space, and I was as you, and then you said. Um, to bring about other possibilities. Um, and that, first of all, always gets me thinking about Audre Lorde's The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. It's like exactly what that is. Um, you can't work within a space that, you know, has been established for thousands of years um, in some way, shape or form has evolved into this and then expect that, like, you know, it's completely going to change. Um, but also... You got me thinking about the fact that while the spaces basically remain the same and we aren't inviting people in, um, we won't ever be able to really imagine something other than what it is. I mean, we'll be able to like shift it and twist it and tweak it a little bit, but it will always it's almost like it always bounces back <laughs> to what it was originally. So it's like you it's the whole you know, two steps forward, five steps back, right? So it's like, yes, we are moving towards these initiatives of diversity and inclusion and equity, um, but not really because it's still, it's like the entrance convergence theory of critical race theory, right? It's about like, you know, yes, we want to support you and, you know, this equality, but as long as we still maintain the status quo. So if you try so to disrupt that, you have to, 
Yeah. Go away. <laughs> You're, it's, so far as it's beneficial for us, Exactly. The whole, we want to move forward. And I think that goes back to Megan's comment about the difference between, you know, saying we are anti-racist, we value diversity and the practices. And that is where probably most of us here in this interview see that, that disparity, right? The actual Mm -hmm. everyday practices maybe aren't necessarily that at the university, at least. Because they're hard. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. You know, that was just like, and yeah, people, they don't really always want, I mean, they don't exactly know how to do the hard work. Right. And they're maybe probably not going to the right sources. And then when they're told the things to do, that is a lot more difficult than they probably expected. Like, you know, is this enough for me to be to me to, to not hate people of color? Like, I mean, it's a good start. But, you know, it only takes you so far. Like, I don't hate cats, but I also don't want them around me all the time. Right. So it's like I'm not I'm not comparing those two things. I'm just saying that, like, the the not hating or the not disliking is just, you know, not what we're talking about. And I think that, like, when people come and say, like, okay, well, you need to check yourself every day. You need to reinvent these practices or throw them out entirely and sink the ship and build a new ship, right? And I think you're right that academia will never do that, well, at I, least I think not in we, the next millennia. <laughs> I think we can really see evidence of that in the way things have evolved over the past two years. You know, we we suddenly were thrown into lockdown. We had to shift everything to entirely virtually. And for some people, that was like, great, you know, like, hey, we don't have to be on campus or, you know, we don't have to be in the office. We're working from home. I'm in my pajamas like I'm living my best life. That was like a very small faction, though, of that population that was suddenly impacted. You know, you had. a whole new uncharted sea of issues when it came to, you know, accessibility and inclusivity for a large amount of people that were already often marginalized, you know, and so we, we tried this experiment in terms of teaching online or working online and, you know, it's debatable how successful it was or maybe it was the best we could do in the time and here we are like I feel like right now we're in this place trying to to reinvent how are we going to make this work moving forward because to go back to the cats, <laughs> the cats out of the bag, you know, here we are, in fact, conducting a meeting where half of you are not here and it's working, you know, but it's not necessarily ideal for everyone in every situation. So um, I think that part of this, this, the the labor, the invisible labor is like, we don't know what it looks like to make it. You know, we have we have great ideas for what it should be, but the actual practice is still yet to be determined. And, and I, I do think it's like take a step forward, take two or three steps back. You know, we have people that were like, I am straight up not Zooming for class anymore. This is not tenable for me. This is not the way I want to learn. This is not the way I want to pay for tuition to be involved in this discussion. Um, and then you have, you know, other people that are like, I cannot be in these public spaces right now. This is a threat to me and my health. So I think it is, a, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll err on the side of being optimistic that I think that there is potential. I think we're facing a lot of setbacks, though, and I think part of the problem is we don't even know what all of them are yet. Um, but I think that also leads me to another point that is worth maybe a little bit of discussion is the idea of invisible labor. For those uh, those that are doing this work in the classrooms, both as you know the facilitators and the students, so could we talk about that a little bit? Could you clarify a brief example or 
something of what the invisible work is. Sure. Or, um, I mean, feel free to jump in and, and correct me if I'm, in, if I'm wrong here, but when an issue of diversity or inclusion comes up amongst um, a group of colleagues or students, it often falls upon the individuals of that group that are um, people of color, people who are disabled, to do the work of the explanation of the advocacy of the um, you know, making sure that it's an equitable thing for everyone. And that adds labor to them that isn't necessarily on, it's not their role to do that work. So that's what I'm getting at. Do you want to add anything to that, um, Dr. Aniano or Dr. Kareem? I'll say, I think um, this reminds me of the chapter in this bridge called My Back that Jared mentioned, um, invisibility is not a, uh, what's the rest of it, Jared? Un Invisibility is not an unnatural disaster. Yes, not an unnatural disaster. And her point in that piece is that it's it's carefully curated, right? Um, her silence is, is carefully curated by those around her. And if you ask me, Megan, I think you're absolutely right. I think people who already are marginalized in particular ways or struggle in particular ways um, have not been considered at all. And that I don't know that it's been intentional, but it it definitely wasn't considered, right? So I think to myself about, and I talked about this in my interview with um, Kehlani and Jarrett, but, but mothers, right? We all know mm -hmm. the labor falls disproportionately on women and hetero couples, uh, the, the labor of children and, and, and caretaking in general, right? And so, um, you know, that that was something when I was looking at jobs was really important to me and not because I have children and not because I plan to have children, but simply because to me, how the university accommodates and treats mothers demonstrates how they value the labor of women, particularly, right? Knowing that this disparity exists. And so, you know, in my mind, I always think like, put, put your money where your mouth is, right? Um, like, do y'all support working mothers, right? So that women academics can be as successful as their male counterparts. And I think that's an area that is not considered by the university, you know, at, at large as much as it should be. And then, it, and that's obviously demonstrated in our um, maternity and paternity leave. But in addition to that, I think during COVID, you know, parents have experienced a particular type of hardship, right? Um, and I think that's something that was not on anyone's radar. In my mind, I was like, yes, working from home, this is fantastic for me because it's just me and my partner and my dog, and my cats, right? But I know other people who that was not the case for them and it was very stressful. And I thought, oh my God, no one is considering this about your particular situation. And so back to thinking about invisibility not being an unnatural disaster and thinking about what Jamila said about, um, you know, thinking about making accommodate, not making accommodations for people with disabilities, but making the norm uh, be a way that includes them. I think it's very similar in some of the hardships and the labor that people have experienced during COVID um, within academia that they just have not been considered because, you know, if you think about the, the norm, what is set as the norm, um, especially considering that academics believe in this um, personal professional split, which has just been completely thrown out the window with COVID and moving to online teaching. And so that's just one example in my mind I can think of 
different people's different class status. I can think of, um, you know, even uh, again, caretaking, right? The people that they interact with, whether they live with children or they live with elderly people, um, whether they are immunocompromised, like there's a lot there that I think COVID COVID made it so that the university should have um, asked people more specifically about what they needed as far as workers and students go. And they, they just haven't. And I think they've made assumptions one way and another, where I think there's lots of people who do want to go back to face-to-face and there's lots of people who don't and are perfect, even students who are perfectly happy um, to take classes online. So, sorry, that was a very long-winded answer to just say, um, I, I agree. I think that it has made some difficulties even more apparent. Um, COVID has, yeah. Yeah, and kind of going off of that, um, but maybe going a little bit different way, uh, thinking about like invisible labor, I think that there's also the component of the emotional and psychological labor of being in a space where you feel like you have to constantly justify your presence and be representative of whatever it is. Uh, I don't know if it's it's women, uh, working class people, uh, you know, Black Americans or just, I don't know, Black people in general, whatever the case may be, um, where, you know, I think that there is some invisible labor there where you are feeling that, I mean, I try to not do this to myself um, anymore. Um, I think you stop as you get older, uh, <laughs> so I don't so much, but where you feel that you are being, you're representing um, more than just yourself. Um, and I think that that can be, uh, you know, that can be laborious, uh, in and of itself. And also, um, I don't know if I would call this invisible labor, but I think it qualifies, um, and just the, the, uh, oh my gosh, impact of, the expectations of because you, I don't know, in my case, um, and I, I'm sure that Dr. Adiano probably gets this a lot, gets this sometimes too, but like when maybe something happens on a national scale or I don't know, somebody does something that sort of is like a social justice issue, like the expectation that you will always have a comment, that you will always like be representative of like people who, who have something to say about that and that you will have a response and that um, impact of like, I don't know, waking up in the morning and being like, okay, mentally prepare for people to ask you about this thing, even though you have no time or energy to really process it and think about it right now. So I think that there is, you know, you know, comparing that's like physical labor, you know, it's like, okay, I'm expected to go lift this thing that I really have not prepared to do, but I know I'm going to have to do it. So, you know, I think that, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I think that it's a lot to carry around and that we expect that of going back to like the COVID thing, right? We expect parents to just be like, okay, well, they're your kids, take care of them. Why do you care that they're at home all the time? Like you had them. And it's like, no, it's a lot. It's a lot to do with like the kids need to break from the parents, the parents need to break from the kids. It's just a lot. And yeah, you don't want them to get sick, but you also, there's also the reality of like, you know, not everyone has a huge suburban house, you know, and I don't know, rural wherever or out in the, you know, in suburbia. Some people are living in 600 square feet apartments with 
with three kids and, you know, and, you know, three adults. And so it's not really understanding the context and then still expecting people to take on the labor because it feels natural. Like, well, it's just something that you do. I think that um, that's also a component of invisible labor, especially when it comes to like social justice and um, yes, social, oh my gosh, social change as well. Hmm. I know that um, I have a question for the the two uh, imprint uh, editors here. Um, when it comes to talking about a lot of these kinds of issues uh, of visibility and social justice issues um, within the the publication of imprint, what are the conversations that you have with you know uh, other authors, people who submit? You know, talking about um, you know making decisions of putting all those pieces together. Can you speak a little bit about what that process is like and what some of those conversations are about creating that, you know, sort of purpose and mission with the with the publication? Well, we like to identify what are you making a call to action for, because you know. We have these discussions regularly ever since, you know, going into lockdown, you know, our differences, what we can do to make a change. And it's one thing to say what is the like the issue at hand. And it's another thing to make an actionable step for us as students to give to one another. Because, you know, us as students, we can't change the whole system that we're in. We can only help one another and create that space for each other. So that's something that we always talk about with writers. Like, what can we do as you know, the editors to facilitate that change with you. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people will will address um, different social issues or um, kind of like communication issues that they may have with with identities and, and cultures that they have. Um, and we always try to ask for proposed solutions in their conclusion. What are some of these actionables that the readers can take and how can you benefit or, or progress with, with having read your article? Um, for this issue, we're, we're trying to focus on the actual building of the bridge um, in terms of this bridge called My Back. It's how we're trying to, we're trying to kind of like relate everything is, is give us more of those actionables. Um, and another note that I think is important is the actionables don't have to be well thought through. They don't have to be the perfect plan or the one that changes world hunger from being world hunger. I think that um, my spouse has told me that in science, there's this narrative about the person who discovered handwashing. The person who discovered handwashing just decided maybe we'll do this, and he implemented it into his facility because um, he found that many people were dying in child labor and that those numbers were really high. So he said, what if we wash our hands between delivering babies? He implemented all the deaths went down. He wrote a paper about it and submitted it to researchers. Everybody ridiculed him. Everybody thought he was crazy. Everybody thought he was absurd. And it didn't happen for 10 years. For 10 years after the discovery, handwashing was not official in facilities. And I think that it identifies that you don't have to know what the solution is to start acting towards a solution. Change can happen very minimally, and it can happen in an experiment, right? So we don't have to know what the result is or how the solution can come about, but trying anything is progress. It seems like a solution, too, to combat what can be exhaustive, right? When you when you begin to identify and you really get your mind around these these issues in terms of um, like institutional mindsets and, you know, longstanding traditions that are really <laughs> dangerous and um, 
you know, you can, you can feel overwhelmed. And then knowing that you're going into combat these things on a daily basis and doing all that invisible labor in terms of like, I'm going to, I have to advocate because I know better now. It can feel like you're just taking from a well and just never refilling the well, right? So I think that it's a really smart decision to think of it in terms of what can I do today? And similarly to Dr. Kareem said, you know, you, you reach a point where you have for self-preservation, you have to like say, okay, this is where I, this is where, this is for me, what I need to take care of so that I can have my own sense of peace. Um, so I, I've, I find that so helpful because especially today, people just want to yell, right? People just want to yell. It's not solution oriented. It's just, I have something to say. I'm going to say it. And it doesn't matter what you think. I'm just going to yell this opinion about out and, you know, take it and do what you will with it. But I, I really love that solution oriented um, spin or twist at the end. It looked like the people on Zoom wanted to say something. No, I just love that because it, it falls in line with, I think, you know, writing and rhetoric. I think we are a problem solving Mm-hmm. solution oriented field. You know, we see a problem and we want to, mm-hmm. and not necessarily a bad problem, but how can something be improved? I feel like that is our orientation, um, towards the things we study. I'm actually going to take maybe not an opposite, but this time I'm going to be the pessimist. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was actually thinking that the Tolman, like, I, I was just thinking like, of like, argument because you said like everyone wants their point to just be heard and not to hear other people and I think often ways that students think that they learn to write um, or at least use rhetoric ethos pathos logos is by grandstanding their argument their thesis their evidence their claims and not listening to others who completely disagree with them so I think that like not that we're completely responsible for it as a field but I I don't know I would like to see more lean into solution based maybe like Rogerian style or even outside of like Eurocentric epistemological ways of doing arguments because I do think that you know even when I try to get students to think outside of that um like you're not making an argument, you are informing people, you are telling them what you're, you know, you're, you're just introducing them. This is exploratory. They're always very, most of them are very much like wanting to be argumentative, wanting to state this is a provable thing. And here is all of the evidence that I've, you know, that I'm gathering. And this one source agrees with me. Therefore I am correct. Right. So I feel like that is, Right. That's on standardized tests. That's on a lot. That's a lot of. Um, oh, my gosh. What, uh, core. Why can't I think common core? Thank you. OK, <laughs> I was like core curriculum, but it didn't make sense. Um, but common core standards. So I don't know. I think that they're the whole yelling at each other thing is maybe uh, impact in introduced through the education system and then through. Uh, media, you know, news media and things like that. So, yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think that as a field, we have the 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 potential and the uh, the tools to sh- make the shift. Um, I'm just not sure that we're doing that entirely. Yeah. There's your next paper: How public education creates echo chambers. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> I think that's our next our next paper our next area. <laughs> I wanted to share a quote, actually, from Dr. Ariano's 
uh, paper. I can't remember who you wrote it with, but we read it. Yes, in preparation um, for it is written with Ana uh, Milena Rivero at Oregon State. Yes, she's at Oregon State University. Awesome. The quote is, um, in other words, when we share our stories, we understand how systems of oppression operate, and we are then in a position to challenge those systems and advocate for political change. So this was a quote from that piece that I really, really enjoyed, and I thought that it was really important in terms of using the stories of the students to address some of these issues. While they're still solution-oriented, they're only solution-oriented in the conclusion, and I think that once they've shared their story, they put themselves in a credible position as well to also like address potential solutions. So I totally agree about the echo chambers. And I think that there's a lot of like grandstanding soapbox kind of arguments that get made. And I think one of the ways that we as an issue try to find our niche in terms of building those arguments is by sharing these stories as yeah. rhetorical arguments rather than backing it up with scholars and using them, as your quote says, to create a position of change. Great. Hmm. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And I, and I want to thank all of our guests uh, for being here today. Uh, we're, we're, we're closing in on, on our time for this episode, but uh, I did have something I, I wanted to throw out to, to all of our guests here today um, is just to ask them, you know, um, what are you working on now or what's on the horizon or what are you excited about uh, that, that's coming up for you if you'd like to share uh, some of that? We're publishing <laughs> the next edition of Imprint. So really quickly, before you go any further, how can our listeners find Imprint? The Imprint website. <laughs> Jared, you say it. Um, um, you, you can find it at Writing and Rhetoric. I want to say it's dot net um, slash Imprint Magazine. I'm sure also if they Google UCF Imprint, it mm -hmm. should come up. Okay. Yeah. So what are you publishing for this next issue? What's it about? We have a ton of different writers talking about anti-racism. We have pieces on um, disability, um, pieces on sexuality. Jared and I are publishing another piece together um, about this podcast. And we also have another introduction letter kind of from us, like a part two to the one in the first edition. Awesome. Yes. I submitted a couple of papers to use poetic instruction as a means of pedagogy to build literacy in other students. Hopefully those papers go through. I'll coin my term poetic literacy officially on this podcast. You heard it for your first, <laughs> folks. Um, I am working on an article um, for uh, about uh, Hispanic serving institutions uh, specifically. Um, hope I did a research project on Hispanic serving institutions in Florida and um, the hopefully the results will be turned into three articles or at least like a book chapter and an article but right now this one is specifically looking at the institutional level and how well um hispanic serving institutions at least the three that i looked at um and as representations of florida are doing in terms of serving the serving part um and of the institution of the hispanic serving institutions because it really should be called hispanic enrolling institutions um, but um, I was specifically looking at the ways that they fit into um, representing only institutional identities and institutional outcomes versus uh, representing um, the multiple cultural 
nuances and practices and values of um, Latinx and Latin American communities and that attend their universities. So yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. And I'm hoping to submit it to one of the, you know, college English C's comp studies, but nobody's taking, uh, nobody's taking submissions right now. So yeah. So I don't know, maybe it'll give me time to actually polish it, but yeah, that's what I'm working on. I uh, just had a meeting this morning with a team that I'm starting to work with. Um, Eric House at New Mexico State University, um, Charles McMartin and Tom Miller at um, University of Arizona. Um, We are putting together a book collection, um, something along the lines of what the pandemic has taught us about um, coalitional leadership. So our framing is leadership and looking at, you know, everything from administration, students, um, communities, um, social justice movements, you know, how, what has the pandemic taught us in terms of leadership? So, um, that we were just getting that together. Um, and that's what I'm working on right now. Wonderful. Well, we have so much exciting things to look forward to in the horizon. And again, um, thank you all for joining us today. Thank you for listening. And we look forward to seeing you next time for another discussion on writing and rhetoric. Yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, guys. Yay.